The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And I'm really honored and delighted to have with us this afternoon Jim Goodman, who is a journalist. He's an organic dairy farmer. He's based in Wisconsin, southwestern Wisconsin, and he lives on a farm that was established by his grandfather. His great-grandfather came to the United States in 1848 following the the famine in Ireland. And Jim, you've been a voice for food and farming justice. You are a member of many organizations, the National Family Farm Coalition, the Family Farm Defenders. We became acquainted through the Kellogg Foundation and the Institute of Ag and Trade Policies Food and Society Policy Fellows Program. And I've just been thrilled to know you and learn your perspective about farming and food. So welcome. Well, thank you, Melinda. So I have more questions than probably we have time to answer. But first of all, you know, you're a dairy farmer, and it's very interesting that I should let our listeners know you have two degrees, one in animal science with honors from the University of Wisconsin and a master's degree in reproductive physiology. You were, were a successful conventional farmer in your former life, and now you're an or, you are an organic dairy farmer. Well, how did you make the change and why? Well, I think we started making the change probably in the late 80s, early 90s, because we, we saw this consolidation of agriculture where all these big supply companies, chemical companies, seed companies were buying everyone out, and we could see that it was costing so much more for the inputs and the money we were getting for milk or our cattle, whatever, was going down. And <laughs> I guess we just figured this isn't going to get better anytime soon. It's likely going to keep getting worse. So we kind of wanted to find a way that we could make a living and stay small. In addition to that, we were really concerned about the health aspects of the way we were farming. My brother and I farmed together, and we were we both had uh, young children, and and we're concerned about you know their health and the safety of all the pesticides and chemicals and everything we were using. So I guess just putting those two things together, we wanted to stay small and we wanted to farm in an environmentally friendly manner and one that was healthy for everyone took us to organic production. Well, it's interesting that you say you wanted to stay small because that seems contradictory to what farmers have always been told, which is, you know, get big or get out. Uh, What was your thinking and how did you do the numbers, crunch the numbers to say, wait a second, maybe getting larger isn't the way to go? Well, I, you know, the, the input costs kept going up, and, and we knew that as you get bigger, you have to spend more. And, the you know, there's, there's only a certain amount of, of cattle that one person can handle, and we didn't really want to hire a lot of people to, to work for us. You know, I, I really like milking cows. I don't have any, any desire to hire people to do that for me. Mm-hmm. Maybe someone to help me, but I want to keep doing it myself. So... I, it's just so much nicer to be able to look out your back door and, and see most of the land that you own. Uh, it's nice to know your cows by name. It's nice to be able to have your kids go down and help you with the work. You know, if you look at the world in general, most of the food is produced on very small acreages, in many cases less than an acre. And, and I, 
I just don't think that we have any mandate to feed the world, and I don't think the world wants us to feed them. I, I think that small farmers, local farming, especially uh, with the oil crisis coming, I think that's the way the world is going to be fed. But, you know, it's really interesting because if you hear the other side speak, they say, well, you know, you can't feed the world like that. You know, sustainable and organic, that's all well and good, but, hey, we've got a big world to feed. And we hear all these messages about economic efficiency and that in order to be efficient, we have to be larger. But what you're saying is actually the most efficient model is one that's small. Well, I think so, and, and I'm sure you've seen the study that, that the international group, and I can never remember the acronym, IS. Yes, yes. Th- that one. Yes. They, and specifically focusing on Africa and developing countries, they said that the best way that they can feed themselves is to do it on small-scale agriculture with organic production methods. So if that's true, and, and I have no reason to believe it isn't, because you know this was done by international scientists and, and people on the ground in these countries, why do we have to think we, we need to feed the world? You know, the world doesn't eat all our number two yellow corn, and it doesn't want our beef, and it doesn't want the other commodity crops that we produce. So I think rather than looking at feeding the world, we should look at feeding ourselves because we import a lot of food and let the world feed themselves. We, we are importing a lot of food. In fact, the imported food is increasing, and I think we could argue from a homeland security standpoint that it's probably not a really good idea to become dependent upon the global south to feed uh, to feed american citizens well no i don't think it's i don't think it's a good idea from from any standpoint homeland security or anything else but maybe even the bigger question is it's, it's very selfish for us to expect countries that have a lot of hunger problems to produce food for us right I want to just uh, mention, Jim, the name of that report that we were both struggling to come up with the acronym for is actually it's a landmark United Nations-sponsored international assessment of agricultural knowledge, science, and technology for development. So it's a mouthful, but the acronym is IAASTD, and there was a report that that group put out called Agriculture at a Crossroads, which absolutely mirrors what you are saying in that we need to stay small and look at a smaller model, a more efficient, actually, to scale model of agriculture to feed the world. So it's a great report, and I encourage our listeners to to look at that the next time you hear the message that we have to go the biotech route if we want to feed the growing world. Now, you just got back from a trip to Mexico, and I'm very interested in knowing that. You went with Via Campesina. Tell me what Via Campesina is and what you learned. Well, Via Campesina is an international organization of peasant farmers, uh, basically small farmers. The word peasant has a negative connotation in the United States, but in the rest of the world it just means, you know, a small farmer, small landowner. And they have been organized for many years to try and allow countries to do just what we've been talking about, feed themselves, to grow the crops that are culturally appropriate for them, crops that grow well. And, and, you know, many of these countries have so many different climatic zones and different crops do better there. Large-scale agriculture doesn't generally allow for that. So it's it's an organization that fights for the justice of farmers and farm workers. And uh, they have been very engaged in, in the struggle to stop Monsanto and the GM companies from imposing their crops on the developing world. 
Are they stoppable, Jim? Oh, it's such a big struggle, you know. And and generally, from from my experience in Mexico and, and other places I've been, small farmers really want nothing to do with it because these GM crops need large-scale agriculture. You need big tracts of land. You need to buy a lot of inputs, the fertilizer, the seed, the chemicals. Small farmers don't have that kind of money. Uh, small farmers don't want to grow commodity crops. They want to grow you know, potatoes and rice and, and maize and all the things that they've lived on for centuries. But big farmers, big tracts of land, and many governments see this as a way to make money. And so it's probably really hard to stop GM from being brought into many countries. Even though the small farmers aren't going to use the technologies, their crops will be contaminated by the pollen. And, of course, in Mexico, that's a real threat because Mexico is the birthplace of corn, and and they have thousands and thousands of varieties, great genetic diversity, and that could all be lost because it will be contaminated with GM pollen. Hmm. So what can we as concerned citizens do to help the stop of this I guess it's I, I, the analogy that comes to mind is a bulldozer or a steamroller taking advantage of these small farmers. Well, you know, like I said, these crops depend on a lot of inputs, oil being one of them, because the crops are, are, are shipped all over the world. The fertilizers, the pesticides are made from oil, so as the price of oil goes up, that type of farming is going to be more difficult to do. Mm-hmm. But as a consumer, as a person that's concerned about what they eat, I think people really need to demand mandatory labeling of foods that have GM content. Yeah, I agree. You know, because people, you know, poll after poll shows that, that the average person does not want GM. They, they just as soon avoid it if they can, but there's no way of knowing. And basically, any time you buy processed food, if there's any corn in it, if there's any soy oil or soy lecithin, it's GM because, what, 90% of the soybeans and 70% of the corn grown in the U.S. are are GM. So it's there, and people need to demand labeling. And I think that when that happens, farmers are going to meet that demand and go back to non-GM varieties. Yeah, and I want to add to that growing list uh, GM sugar beets. The GM sugar beets. So all of our candy over the holiday season will be laced with the GM sugar. Well, you know, and I don't even think that I have a conceptualization of how much GM modification has been going on. When I was in Mexico, I met with some farmers who have a small cooperative that produces mezcal, and mezcal is made from agave, which is, you know, a native desert plant. Right. And I didn't know, but I found out that the blue agave plant has been genetically engineered, so much of the tequila that people buy is made from GM agave. Wow. I, I, you know, who would have thought? Right. I, I have no idea what it's been engineered for, but the tentacles of these agribusiness companies want to get into everything. And if you kind of think back on when this whole process started, I don't know if it was so much about producing one GM crop and then building on that to produce another, I think the long-range goal was complete control of the food system. Right. You know, yesterday I was listening to a PBS program. It was a Michael Pollan interview, and he described the GM potato that had been developed, and it was actually the consumers who started calling McDonald's and saying, you know, I don't want GM potatoes. I don't want to feed my kids these these foods. 
and that was ultimately what stopped it. So I think that, you know, we have a really great opportunity. And the reason why I love talking to farmers on this program is because I think if farmers and consumers can get together, we will have a huge opportunity to make a difference. But we have to work in solidarity. Well, I think that's the only way it can work because there aren't very many farmers, let alone farmers that you know are, are willing to produce what consumers want. And we don't have a very big voice. We have a few rural legislators that are willing to work with us, but some of our best allies have been urban legislators from inner city areas because a person at risk in the inner city is much the same as an at-risk person in a rural area. Absolutely. They, they just don't have any voice. They don't have any power. Right. You know, one of the issues that you and I have talked about at length for, gosh, probably over a year has to do with health care. And it's interesting when I asked you, you know, what, what made you make that conversion from being a conventional farmer to an organic one? You said, well, you know, we had kids. We cared about their health. And that is very commonly stated from farmers. They'll, they'll say, you know, I cared about my kids, I care about the water, I care about the air, and I made the switch from using pesticides to not, or it made the switch from using synthetic, more harmful pesticides to not. And now we have a much larger issue on our plate nationally, and that has to do with health care. And I know we've had this conversation with your wife as well. You know, do you have health insurance? What can we do to help make sure that farmers do have the health care that we need? Well, we, we do have a health care policy, but it's a $10,000 deductible, and you know the only time we would ever collect is if we got really sick or, or, or really injured. And, and to me, that's not... That's not health care. I, I think health care is, is preventative care. And, you know, most policies that farmers have, if they're lucky enough to have them, have very little provision for that. And farming is one of the most dangerous occupations in the country. You know, large animals out in the sun all day, pesticide exposure and that sort of thing. And there's always that pressure to use more and more, to produce more and more to make a living. So I, I think it's a real, a real concern for farmers. And again, we can go back to the inner city people. You know, that's where a lot of the toxic waste dumps are. Those are the people that get the worst food. Those are the people that have very little access to preventative care. So in my book, the only way that we can answer this question is to have universal single payer, you know, Medicare for all, everybody in, nobody out. Right. Um, I think that's the only thing that, that's going to work. Anything less than that is uh, just catering to the insurance companies because for some reason even President Obama seems to have have the idea that we need to protect their their profits and I, I can't understand why. Yeah, it's it's very interesting and this whole concept of well, you know, we certainly don't want socialized medicine. I think uh, we just need to use a different frame because I think it's compassionate health care that we're really talking about and covering the people like yourself who keep people like me well by providing us with a healthy and safe food supply. Who who better to provide a good, solid health insurance plan to? Well, and that's, that's very true. And, and uh, you know, as far as the word socialized, I mean, we have socialized military protection, socialized police forces, socialized highways, socialized schools. No one seems to think that we should get rid of those. Right. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, there have been efforts like in schools to, to privatize them, and that hasn't worked very well. Uh, and people that have Medicare 
the vast, vast majority of them think it's great and, and don't even realize it's a government program, some of them. So I think people need to, to educate themselves, and we need to get over this idea that we have some sort of moral obligation to ensure health insurance companies a healthy profit because basically all they do is push papers and deny coverage. Um, you know, you have to fight for everything you can get out of them, and, and that's not the way health care should be. Absolutely. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Jim Goodman. Jim is a journalist, an organic dairy farmer, and he is based in southwestern Wisconsin. Jim, you've been a wonderful advocate for family farmers. You're a member of the National Family Farm Coalition, the Family Farm Defenders. Tell me something. How do your neighbors who are conventionally farming, how do they react to your methods? Well, it's it's changed, I guess, over the what fifteen years or so that we've been organic. But initially, we were you know kind of laughed at a lot because we'd have weeds in the end of the fields, and they just didn't think that it was the proper way to be farming. Now that a lot of them have gone out of business and we're still in business, they look at it a little differently, and you know they know that our milk prices are better, and and that our cattle appear to be much healthier, and that we don't have to spend quite as much time working as they do, so they're starting to think, well, maybe there is something to this. You know, and, and we we have a real relationship. We direct market beef as well, and we have a real relationship with our customers, and I think that's something that most farmers lack that makes farming a lot easier to do. I mean, when someone buys something directly from you and says, wow, that was just really good, it sort of makes getting up, you know, at 5.30 every morning uh, when it's 20 below zero worth it. So... I think I think our neighbors are starting to realize that maybe they were a bit hasty in their uh, initial ridicule of the way we farm. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about what's going on with dairy. I was just at far- the Farm Aid Conference in St. Louis, and I spoke with a friend and colleague of yours, Joel Greeno, who is with the Family Farm Defenders and National Family Farm Coalition as well. And he's really struggling, and many dairy farmers are really at the end of their rope. Uh, we're probably going to lose many dairy farmers this year. What is going on? Well, I, I, I guess the thing is that in the last year, the base pay price that farmers get for their milk has, has been cut in half. Many years ago, the USDA estimated the cost of production, break-even production for a dairy farm, uh, and they should at that point, I think this is probably about 1999, somewhere in there, that farmers should be getting about $17 a hundred for their milk. Well, right now they're getting about 11 And $17 is just break-even cost. So the only way anybody can keep farming, because they're losing money every day, and I guess some estimates put it at about $100 per cow per month that they're losing, the only way they can survive is to cut corners somehow, whether it's you know they don't repair their buildings, they don't have insurance, uh, they cut back on the amount of food they're buying. They can't repair their machinery. They get an off-farm job, which isn't easy to do either. And this isn't just organic farmers. It isn't just small farmers. It isn't just big farmers. It's all dairy farmers. The really sad part, in my estimation, is that farmers like Joel, who is small, milks, I think, about 50, 60 cows, he, he doesn't have the ability to weather it as well as somebody that's milking 2,000 cows because... Those farmers are pretty heavily leveraged from the bank, and the bank isn't going to let a farm like that go under because there's a lot of money tied up in them. Somebody like Joel, who probably has money borrowed as well, well, if they lose him, lose a small farmer, it's not a big, 
big a net loss to the bank. So in that sense, small farmers are going to suffer a lot quicker than the big farmers because they just aren't going to be backed up by their lenders. Hmm. Well, the price of milk isn't going down in the grocery store. No. Well, and that's always been the case, that as farm milk prices go up, the price you pay in the store goes up. When farm milk prices fall, the store price maybe drops a little, but it's not much, and it doesn't drop nearly as quickly. And, you know, the only proof you need of that is to look at the profits of of the big dairy processors. Dean Foods uh, uh, made huge profits last year, Kraft making huge profits. And they... uh, I don't know, I guess they they feel that they're entitled to that, and and that's the way business is done. And there are programs to, you know, call dairy cows and and reduce the supply, which they say will increase the price. And these programs have been going on for a few years, but as they cut the domestic production, these big dairy processors import to make up the loss. So what are we really accomplishing? Right. Certainly not helping the farmers, and like you mentioned before, we're bringing in food from other countries that can ill afford to feed us, and it's not produced under the same standards that we're held to. You know, the melamine thing in China, perfect example. Right. And so that's that's the way that, that the dairy industry is controlled by, you know, a few huge processors that decide how much farmers are going to be paid and how much profit they're going to get to make. Do you have any suggestions as what the answer to this problem might be? Is it direct sales between farmers and consumers? Well, I think the first thing they need to do is stop stop imports. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. Why should we be bringing bringing uh, dairy, you know, whether it's powder or, or components or milk protein concentrate into the country when they say we've got more production than we need? Mm-hmm. You know, that's one thing. I think that. The government is, is making a few efforts to to buy surplus cheese and put it into commodity programs. I think that's not an all bad idea that, that people that don't have enough to eat should should get good dairy products to eat. You know, and I I don't want to I don't know how to say it, but I, I I guess dairy eating dairy isn't for everyone and that's fine. But I think that dairy farmers, especially small dairy farmers, need to be protected in some way. And I guess that right now uh, there has to be some immediate relief or we're going to lose a lot of farmers before the the end of the year. Mm -hmm. So there's going to have to be some kind of of direct payment just to keep them in business because they just can't go on this way. And and there there is a a bill in Congress now that's been approved to, and I can't remember the dollar figure, how they get that to the farmers, I'm, I'm not sure. But, yeah, there has to be some immediate relief and beyond that you know your your point about more direct marketing uh, more small local dairies uh, I think those are all good points because again not just farmers want to link with their customers but I think consumers want to link with farmers and they would much prefer to buy local regional dairy products than something that you know has stuff that was produced in India or Southeast Asia. Right, and absolutely, again, no labeling to that effect on our dairy products. You know, we right. think we're buying milk from a local dairy. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, people want to know where their food comes from, especially with all the, the food safety problems we've had with E. coli and meat and vegetables and mad cow bees and, you know, people want to know because I think if they have a direct link with the farmer or at least the cooperative or whatever, they have a better sense of 
where that food's coming from, how it was produced. And I think they're willing to spend a little more to get it. I totally agree with you. Our time is coming to a close, and I want to give you an opportunity to give us all a charge. I, I thank you so much, Jim, for sticking with farming and putting quality food on the plates of consumers. You're helping to keep our nation strong and well, and it's not an easy task. And then on top of that, you're working to help other small farmers across the globe, really. Is there a charge you want to give us today? Well, I think uh, one of the first things we mentioned, you know, demand labeling. We should have GM labeling. We should have uh, country of origin, point of origin labeling. Farmers, like I said, have don't have much political power, but consumers do, and I think that we need to work together. I don't really know any farmer that would try or want to produce something that he couldn't sell. I don't think farmers want to force things down people's throats. Big corporations, perhaps they do. So I think, you know, if you have a chance to go to farmer's markets, buy locally from a farmer you know, I think that can make a tremendous difference. And not only for the income of the farmer, for your health, but for the for the good of the environment as well. Absolutely. If you'd like to read more about Jim's work, you can go to foodandsocietyfellows.org and search under Jim Goodman. I also recommend that our listeners go to familyfarmdefenders.org and you can link to the report that we spoke about earlier, Agriculture at a Crossroads, and that, again, is from the UN-sponsored International Assessment of Agricultural Knowledge, Science, and Technology for Development, a mouthful. Jim, thank you so much for being with us today. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thanks for taking time away from your cows today, Jim. Hey, thank you, Melinda.